Now, brothers and sisters, let's take out our Bibles this Christmas morning and turn with me to that text that we heard earlier from Benson. John chapter 1, verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14. That will be our text for today. Now, sometimes sermons are meant to stir us up to action. Sometimes there's, there's an application that we're to go out and do. Many texts of the Bible call us to go out and do something. To be holy. To fight sin. To proclaim the gospel. To serve the weak and give to the poor. But that is not the sermon for today. Today it's all about worship. Worship. The application here is worship. Worship Christ, the newborn King. My job this morning is to show you Christ, high and lifted up, and to say, behold, your Savior and Lord, and lead you to worship. And so let's read our text this morning. It's just that one verse, John chapter 1, verse 14. This is God's Word. John writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. But what does John say after that? Well, there's three things I want to point you to this morning. Number one, he says he dwelt among us. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. This is what we often call the incarnation. God incarnate. The angel told his parents he shall be called Emmanuel. Why? Because it means God with us. God with us. That's what happened when Jesus was born. Have you ever thought about that? When Jesus was born, God came to live with us. He came to be one of us. Of all the religions in the world, only Christianity claims that the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe condescended to become one of us and experience our humanity. The one who gave life to every single person allowed himself to grow and develop in the womb of an unmarried young girl. The source of all now had a source himself. As Matt Boswell so perfectly puts it in his hymn, Sing We the Song of Emmanuel, he says, Maker of Mary, now Mary's son. While the eternal word was uncreated, you heard that in our text, the word became flesh. John's talking about Jesus in those terms. In the beginning was the word. That's Jesus. That's Christ the Son. And so while the eternal word was uncreated and had existed for all time and himself created all things, the person of Jesus of Nazareth had a beginning and was confined to space, time. And a physical body. The invincible one became helpless. The most powerful being in the world needed to be fed, cleaned, changed, and soothed. The protector of all needed protection. 
He emptied himself of the glory and power that he had for all eternity, and he allowed himself to be affected by the powers and weaknesses of those to whom he had given life and breath. The only truly independent being in the entire universe became completely dependent upon sinful, imperfect people. J.I. Packer, in his book Knowing God, writes this, It is here, in the thing that happened at that first Christmas, that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The Word became flesh. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the Incarnation. It's so true. In that verse that we just read, it says he dwelt among us. In the Greek, the word is literally tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. John takes a noun and uses it as a verb. The noun, tabernacle. Do you remember what the tabernacle was in the Old Testament? It was the the movable tent where God's glory, God's presence dwelt. The Israelites set up this tent... And they set up a curtain, a a huge rug, if you will, a veil. And behind that rug dwelt the Ark of the Covenant. And above the Ark of the Covenant, God's glory, his presence in the midst of his people. And it was a movable tent because they were wandering in the wilderness. But if you remember, when Solomon came along, he built a temple, a house for the Lord. And all of a sudden, that tabernacle became a place set in stone, a place that didn't move in Jerusalem, and God's presence dwelled there. And so that word tabernacle, John brings forward into the New Testament here, and he uses it as a verb. And he says, he tabernacled among us. Why? Because the tabernacle is the place where God's presence dwells on earth. The tabernacle, or the temple, if you will. The place where God's presence dwelt on earth. But when Jesus was here... He was that place. He, in himself, was that place. Remember when he turned over the tables and drove the money changers and the animals out of the temple? And he turned to the Pharisees and he said, Three days. In three days, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in that amount of time. I can raise this temple back up in three days. And they thought he was talking about the the building that it took years to build. But he was talking about his own body. His own body was the temple, the place where God's presence dwelled on earth. And so it says he dwelt among us, but it also says we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. Now, the reason the Apostle John writes that is because he was there. The Apostle John, he was one of Jesus' closest friends, one of the 12 apostles. He walked and talked and ate with Jesus for three years. He was an eyewitness to his ministry, to his death and to his resurrection. But he's also hearkening back to a very familiar passage back in the book of Exodus. Exodus 33, where Moses is on Mount Sinai with God alone. And Moses boldly prays, God, please show me your glory. Well, God has shown us his glory and he has done so by sending his son, Jesus. We have seen his glory. God told Moses on that very same mountain, Moses, no one may see me and live. You can't see the full glory of God and live to tell about it. It will kill you. And we see that played out throughout Scripture. 
The consequences for seeing the full glory of God was death. In the temple, as we just talked about, a veil covered the most holy place where God's presence dwelled so that none of the priests would catch an accidental, life-ending glimpse of the glory of God. But in Jesus, we see the Father. In Jesus, we see the Father. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. Jesus said to Philip in John 14, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And so in Jesus, those of us who have given our lives to him, those of us who have placed our trust in him, in Jesus we have access to the Father. But at the same time, we have protection from the danger of death that comes to those who get too close. We have protection from God's wrath. There is one way and one way alone for people to see God and not die. And it's Jesus. Jesus. Now, Jesus' glory, the glory that it says we have seen, his glory is not what you would expect. It's not what the world was expecting. Because Jesus shows his glory through humility. His glory is shown through humility. The king and creator and sustainer of the whole universe was born in a barn, laid in what was likely a feeding trough for animals. He spent his first night in dirty, cold conditions because there was no room for him among his own people, a theme that would continue throughout his life and his ministry. In fact, just a few verses before the verse that we just read, John 1 verse 11 says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That theme of there being no room for Jesus continues. Jesus shows his glory through his meekness. He shows his glory through his weakness and ultimately through his death. The unlikely path is what makes his glory shine so bright and so majestic. The wonderful, unexpected combination of lion and lamb, ruler and servant, cross and crown, suffering and victory, death and resurrection, humiliation and exaltation. And so... He came to dwell among us. We have seen his glory. And then it says at the very end of this verse, he came full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself, what does this actually mean? What does this actually mean that he was full of both grace and truth? That he had both of these things in full. Not just one to the exclusion of the other. That is our tendency as human beings. We tend to have one in exclusion to the other. We tend to to maximize, so to speak, one and minimize the other in our lives with our natural temperament, so to speak, the way that, that we were made, if you will. We naturally emphasize one and minimize the other. If we go to one side, we have grace without truth. Grace without truth. In in this way, anything goes. Sin is really no big deal. Doctrine doesn't matter. Acceptance and affirmation for all is the ultimate value. Grace without truth, no matter what. Holy living doesn't really factor in. 
God is love in this situation. But his holiness and his righteousness and his wrath and his judgment are discarded. It's grace without truth. It leads to emotionalism. Just stir up your emotions and make sure you have strong, positive feelings about God. But there's no substance. And without the substance, without the roots, you'll fall away when persecution and suffering comes. In fact, for much of the world today, Christmas is exactly like this. That's the kind of Christmas they want. Grace without truth. They want all the feelings of peace and love and the magic of Christmas without the one who is the whole reason for it all. But you see, that's just one error. That's just one way you fall off into the the ditch, so to speak. You can also fall off the other way and have truth, truth without grace. Truth without grace, which is just legalism. Cold moralism. It's the religion of the Pharisees that we see in the Gospels. Works righteousness. The most obedient and the most disciplined get in. And the rest of us are out of luck. It's not about forgiveness. It's about performance. And in this way, truth without grace, church is where the good people are. And becoming a Christian is all about being a good enough person. And it eventually leads to an attitude of superiority. We are better than you. We are better than them out there. It's truth without grace. And in the end, there's really no reason for the cross or for the manger, for that matter. Because what's the point of Christmas if we can just save ourselves? But Jesus came full of both grace and truth, it says. Full of grace and truth. And so, for example, he says to the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you. And yet he also says, go and sin no more. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And yet he also says, anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Anyone who does not renounce all he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus proclaims the message that forgiveness and salvation are open to all, even the worst of sinners. And yet, you must admit you are a sinner in need of a Savior. You must repent and forsake your sin. And so I close with this. Why did he come? Why did he come? This Christmas, we rejoice that Christ came. That God became one of us. He dwelt among us. That we have seen his glory. And he came full of grace and truth. But why did he come? Why? Ultimately, he came to save us. He was born to die. From the first moment of that first Christmas, everything was progressing toward the cross. That was his purpose. To save us, he had to be one of us. To save us, he had to be one of us. He had to experience all of our weaknesses and temptations and yet come through it all having never given in, having never sinned. A sinless substitute was what was required. A sacrificial lamb without blemish, if you will. He had to be one of us because he was a substitute for us. 
He was a substitute. He took God's wrath in our place. And so it had to be a human, like for like. But it couldn't be just any human. It had to be a human, but it couldn't be just any human. No, this human had to die for the sins of not just one person, but for every other person. It had to be a man, but more than a man. God himself in the flesh, an infinite being who could suffer an infinite amount in a finite body, in a finite period of time. That's the only way it would work. This is what Christmas is really all about. The reason that he came. We celebrate that he came. Why did he come? He came to save us from our sins. And so worship Christ this morning. Worship Christ this day. Worship Christ, the newborn king. But worship the one who came to die. Right now, I want to lead us in a time of silent prayer. We do this every week here at Columbia Christian. This is a time we give after we hear from God and his word to speak back to him. Every single one of us in silent prayer. And so we encourage you to use this time to respond back to God, respond to what he has just laid upon your heart, whatever it might be, because it's probably different for every single one of us. And so let's pray silently for just a few moments, responding to whatever God has just laid on our hearts through his word.